Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's a beautifully poetic psalm of what God is going to do in response to the prayer. Now, there are several songs we could do at this point. But one of the songs that I think in our hymnal fits quite well. Beautiful song. The Gettys were in Springfield last year, and Cindy and I went to see them. It was a phenomenal concert. Uh, really good job. The violins are gorgeous. Psalm 85. Let's do the uh, second half of Psalm 85 again. In case you missed the first review, here's the review a second time on one screen. The psalmist begins by recalling how the Lord has refreshed and restored his people in times past. Then, because the Lord's people are in distress again, he prays for the Lord's intervention for their revival. And finally, the psalmist expresses his confident expectation, the Lord will renew them and all things. That's Psalm 85. The prayer request really begins in verse 8 when it reads this way, let me hear what the... God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Uh, start off with the principle building on last week that everybody is hearing voices. Uh, you're not crazy if you're hearing voices. You're hearing voices whether you recognize it or not. Those voices may be inside of you because there is such a thing as self-talk. And you do talk to yourself. Uh, some of you actually talk to yourself out loud, and that does weird people out a little bit. Uh, but everybody has self-talk. But there's also talk that you hear from other people and in our culture in different ways. And, and if you don't know who is speaking into your life, then the problem is probably greater than what you realize. Because... Part of the solution to what we need from God is recognizing, for starters, what voices am I being exposed to that are potentially or almost likely influencing me? And it's learning to identify those voices. There was a book written a few years ago called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. Uh, the Wisdom Pyramid, it's less than 10 years old, and what it is is... Uh, not strict categories, but uh, categories nonetheless from most important to, to least important. And all of those categories are speaking into our lives. 
and then learning to control and monitor the voices that are speaking into our lives. Now, the book was published by Crossway, and so there's a, a little two-minute promo that explains the book, which I've included in the presentation, so that you get an idea of who you're listening to or you're at least exposed to. It goes like this. The Wisdom Pyramid is a guide for pointing us to sources of nourishing, trustworthy truth in a post-truth age. The first layer of the Wisdom Pyramid is the Bible, God's Word. If He is the definition of wisdom, then it makes sense that His direct revelation to us should be the foundational layer of our pyramid. Next up is the church. This is God's people across time, our local church, the body of Christ on earth. It should be an invaluable source of wisdom for us. And then nature, God's creation. Scripture says, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's creation should reveal things to us about the Creator. And so if we spend time outside instead of on our devices, we can pick up a little wisdom there. And then books. This is kind of an obvious one if you think about becoming wise, read books. But I think especially older books, books that have stood the test of time, is important for our wisdom. And then beauty, art, music, things that help us reflect, focus, be attentive to the world around us. Wisdom is not just about facts, it's also about feelings and emotions and kind of that intangible level that beauty can provide. And then finally, at the top of the wisdom pyramid, which is the least important, is the internet and social media. It's not that that can never be a source of truth, but we need to be careful and we need to use it sparingly. Don't make it the staple of your diet. So that's it, that's the Wisdom Pyramid. It's really just a guide to help us be discerning in our media habits, in the things that are speaking into our hearts and minds. We need Christians of all people to be growing in wisdom and not following the ways of the world. So that's the Wisdom Pyramid, and I think it's fair to say that Christians, people that are gathering together as the church, everybody knows that the Bible ought to be the foundation of our wisdom. But there is a difference between saying what you know to be true and your life choices actually reflecting that truth. Because it's also easy to allow other voices to spend more time speaking into my life, and I may think it's under control, when in fact I may have less control than what I imagine. If the Bible really is the foundation of truth, and I believe it is, if the Bible really is what I say I believe, then that should be reflected in the choices that I make. And then up the pyramid it goes. I, th I think church is aptly put number two because it's the historic faith handed down to us by the apostles that the church still gathers to confess and still recognizes as being true. Although the church, whatever church tradition uh, may exist, it too must fall under the authority of Scripture at the end of the day. Because every church, every local church, on some level, doesn't have it 100% right. Every local church struggles with understanding uh, nuances of doctrine, not major cardinal doctrine, but nuances of doctrine we struggle with. And so church tradition falls under the authority or needs to be built upon what God has revealed in his word. Nature's a good point. The books are a good point. Arts, uh, arts and beauty uh, is a good source of truth. I would say I find that more significant than it seems like it's an awful little part at the beginning. 
I, on some level, I, I mean, I'm clearly not musical, but I really appreciate music, and, and the music I listen to, I find very, uh, it moves me in my heart and soul to want to worship God in spirit and truth. Whether it's Rich Mullins, we did a song from him last week, whether it's Keith Green, whether it's hymns like Rock of Ages, Be Thou My Vision, all those sources of music, I think, speak very powerfully as to what is true and timeless. And it's good to be exposed to that. I think at the top, the one that's easiest to go to, the easy way, is simply to expose yourself to what our culture spends their time with and what is so handily available, uh, the smartphone that you presumably carry, uh, one way or the other, it's easy to spend a lot of time there and, and be consumed by it and actually keep you from better sources of truth that are far more reliable. All right, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. I think there's a difference in between hearing and listening, though that really the, the distinction doesn't hold true in Scripture. In the Bible, if you've heard something, you're responding appropriately to what you've heard. But in our culture, you can hear something and not do a bloody thing with it. And so in our culture, we kind of make a distinction between you can hear and you can actually listen. Listen tends to suggest you've responded appropriately to what you've heard. And that's a good thing. Because the Israelites heard a lot of what God said. They heard what the prophets said. Uh, they heard what was read to them in the synagogue, but it didn't mean they responded appropriately. Their tendency, as you read through the Old Testament, their tendency is to persecute and reject the prophet's message. Their tendency is to, to persecute, kill, and destroy, and to not pay attention, and to go after their idols no matter what God says in any form. So just because you've heard something does not necessarily mean you've responded rightly to what you've heard. Jesus said things like, if anyone has ears to hear... Let him hear. He's telling people they heard what he just said. But he's not saying, are you hearing what I just said, but are you responding appropriately to what I just said? Is it making a difference in your priorities, in your time schedule, in the way that you conduct yourself, in your motivations? It's to make a difference. Jesus also said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Because you can hear, but you, cannot, you can possibly not respond appropriately in accordance with what has been said. Cornelius is a good example of somebody who did the opposite. Cornelius sent for Peter, and Peter had to be prepared by the Lord. You'll read about it in Acts chapter 10. And when Peter came, uh, he, Peter asked him, like, tell me why you sent for me. And Cornelius kind of lays out his story. And as he lays out his story in Acts chapter 10, he ends in verse, uh, it's verse 33, he writes, so, so we are now here, all of us, in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. I want to know what God has told you to tell me. I want to respond. That's Cornelius. Not somebody who just hears the message, but somebody who's eager to hear the message and wants to receive the message so that it makes a difference in his life, he does hear and he does respond appropriately. Another good example 
would be the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, which is kind of an interesting story for, I'll tell you why in just a second. But it tells me that when Paul and Barnabas went to the Bereans and shared, uh, opened up the scriptures to them, which were pointing to Christ, they searched the scriptures diligently to see whether those things were so. They had a heart to know, is this in fact true to scripture? And presumably, many of them just found out, in fact, it is true. And they responded appropriately so that they didn't drag Paul out of the city and stone him. Uh, Rather, they responded appropriately in faith. And that's having just left Thessalonica where the city did not respond that way. But what's interesting, though the city of Thessalonica did not respond like the Bereans afterward, Those in Thessalonica who did respond appropriately, because a church was established there, Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, and he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There were those in Thessalonica that received it as the word of God. I, uh, one of my heroes, as everybody knows, is Dr. James Greer, who passed away now in, I think it was 2013, which is just amazing how time flies like that. But uh, Dr. James Greer, talked, he taught a Bible study, but he did lots of things. Um, philosophy and theology professor. He was the dean up at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary for a lot of years. Uh, he I did some pastoral work. He taught a Thursday night Bible study for, I think, just decades. And he definitely said he noticed there was this transition when people came to Bible study. They would decide whether what he taught was something they wanted to do, whether they agreed with it, and it would make any difference or not. And he's like, if you, come in, if you come into a Bible study with the attitude that I will decide whether that is true for me, you've already started off on the wrong foot, not the right foot. Starting off on the right foot is, if God has revealed it to be so in his word, and don't take my word for it, be like the Bereans, search the scriptures, is that in fact faithful with what scripture teaches? If it is what God has taught, then it ought to make a difference. God's not waiting for you to decide. He's commanding a decision. He's commanding a a right response to what he has revealed to be true. And Greer recognized that as time went on, uh, people were less inclined to approach Scripture that way. And he, I could go on about Dr. Greer, but I won't. So what's the message that is heard? The psalmist says in verse 8, Let me hear what the Lord will speak. Well, what does the Lord speak? He will speak peace, which is the word shalom in the Old Testament. Which, uh, w- when we were doing uh, 2 Samuel, and we had the incident as it ended in Absalom's death, And David is waiting back at the city uh, to hear word what happened on the battlefield. And you remember the first messenger came and he said, all is well, which is the word shalom. Because that's what shalom means. It means all is well. Everything's whole. Everything is as it should be. All is well. And David said, is it shalom with the young man Absalom? And the first messenger said, ah, he lost heart. He lost courage. He lied. He said... Uh, There was a commotion. I'm not sure what happened. And he knew exactly what had happened because he'd been told. So then the second messenger comes. 
And David says, is shalom with the young man Absalom. And in a somewhat poetical kind of way, the second messenger reveals that Absalom was slain. So while all is well within the kingdom of Israel on one level, it certainly was not well with the young man Absalom. So he will speak peace. All is well. And this is on the basis of these are his people. These are his saints, his godly ones. The reason why God can give a message of all is well, everything is whole, is because these are his people, his people by grace. It's because of what God has determined and purposed and promised to do, not because the people in and of themselves are deserving of this peace, this wholeness, this message of all is well. And then what follows is a is a warning, but let them not turn back to folly, which seems almost a little out of place, and it's an interesting avenue to explore, which we will here in just a second, or just a moment. It's also interesting that, though I think pretty much almost everybody's Bible will, will read this way, let them not turn back to folly, it's a warning. Uh, all is peace for his people, his saints, but don't turn back to folly, it's a warning. The Christian Standard Bible and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I like quite a lot, they actually turn it into a purpose clause. It reads this way. The psalmist says, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. That's the way that the Christian Standard Bible says. It's not a warning to the people. It's, what, it's declaring God's purpose for his people. He's not going to let them go back to their foolish ways. When it's all said and done, what the Christian Standard Bible says is true. If God doesn't make the difference of completely eradicating sin from my life, I will drop the ball. But I think the Christian Standard Bible is unwarranted to translate it that way, even though I, I think commentated the ones that really delve into it uh, discount that. It's really not appropriate. Though the, the, this, the concept is true, but it really doesn't fit verse 8. Because here it's really not a purpose statement. It really is meant to be a warning. It's meant to be a warning. Verse 9 says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. And, and so we've got this unresolved tension in Psalm 85. Now, it is resolved in Scripture as a whole, and on some level it's even resolved in Psalm 85, but there's this incredible tension through especially all of the Old Testament between things like God speaking peace, these are his people, they're his saints, salvation is near, glory is going to dwell in the land, and then you've got this Warning, don't turn back to folly. I mean, everything seems so perfect. It seems so set. It seems so ideal. And, and then the warning almost spoils it because I know I will turn back to folly. I'm like the come thou fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I suspect you know yourself to be that way as well. That even though you know what scripture says on so many occasions, I'm prone to leave 
what God has said is the right path. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And so you've got this tension in Scripture between all that God keeps promising, and it's like he's over I mean, it sounds like he's over-delivering on this promise. He's promising these lofty things, but he's forgetting how weak we are and how prone we are to wander. So he's got to give me this warning, which casts kind of a, a shadow on these wonderful promises that God has made. Now, this is familiar. Psalm 89, I thought I would go to Isaiah, but I guess that must be next. Psalm 89 resolves this tension. When we have God's wonderful promises and my tendency to wander, which one is going to win out at the end of the day? Psalm 89 is a good text to look at as to how it will work out at the end of the day. Psalm 89 is a long psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. I'm going to start reading, and I may skip around. I know you can find it because you're in Psalm 85, so it's very, very nearby. It's a neighbor. Same block. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Those are lofty promises. Lofty promises to David and to his house, to his seed. I'm going to skip down, go to um, verse 19. Verse 19 says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said... I've granted help to the one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I found David, my servant, with my holy oil I've anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness... And my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and they did, and do not walk according to my rules, and they didn't, if they violate my statutes, and they did, and do not keep my commandments, and they didn't, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. A very powerful psalm. God makes these grandiose promises... And then, and then he, he anticipates Israel and David's descendants 
not obeying and not walking in the commandments of the Lord and not obeying the statutes. And it sounds like all bets are off because they turn back to folly. But God says, oh, no, you didn't mishear me. And I'm not changing the promises I've made. I'm not altering one word of promise that has come out of my mouth. It all will be fulfilled. And it's not because David in and of himself, finally one of his descendants in and of themselves gets it right. It's because there's one descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son made man, that one descendant will get it all right, guaranteeing and fulfilling that those promises are all fulfilled. That's the tension. Now, in Isaiah, we found the same thing, uh, a repetition of this unresolved tension. We were in Isaiah in 2021, and then a few months into 2022, and we did Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. It took us a little over a year. And in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, which are some of the, they're just mountain peaks in the Old Testament of wonderful prophecies and exalting God. Uh, It is so magnificent. When I would talk with Jehovah's Witnesses when we lived in the country, they would visit us far more often than when we live in the city. I would commonly take them to Isaiah uh, because they did not have answers for Isaiah. They expected Christians to take them to John 1. So I never took them to John 1. I took them to Isaiah and I'd start reading these passages and asking questions for which they had no answers because their theology is that wrong. But in Isaiah... The repetition you find, especially in 40 to 66, read those chapters and and you'll find the repetition over and over and over. It's a repetition of Israel's sinful, and so God is going to bring judgment on their sin. Sin, judgment. Then the, the third phase is, nevertheless, God promises this great salvation. He promises this new day, this new tomorrow, a better tomorrow. Everything's going to be fixed. And then the repetition will go back to sin and judgment, promise of grace, sin, judgment, promise of grace. And in all of that, there's always this encouragement to those that are faithful, encouragement to those who believe. Because if they're not encouraged, they're like, well, God, I know you keep making these wonderful promises. It's kind of like the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. God, I know you promised me that I'm going to be the father of many nations and all peoples will be blessed by me, but I don't have a child. It's kind of hard for my family name to live on when I have no descendant. And God keeps making that promise to Abraham. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be so wonderful. And Abraham, he wants to believe, and, but, but he doesn't see any progress. And so eventually he's trying to figure things out on his own. And in fact, God was right all along. In spite of our limitations and weaknesses and inabilities, God kept his word. Sin, judgment, salvation, encouragement. Keep believing, though you're not seeing evidence of it right now. Because there's coming a great renewal and reversal, and Jerusalem will be all that she was ever promised to be. And you read that pattern over and over and over again in Isaiah. And we did for uh, a good year. He says, surely salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. The good news to the church is salvation is near. It's near to Jews, Gentiles, uh, male, female, slave, free, all cultures, all languages. 
God has said salvation is near. Because salvation is by faith. Salvation is by, by trusting in his son, not trusting in your best efforts and being better than your neighbor. I have a passage, Romans chapter 10 on there. I'm going to show you this passage. And uh, if we were to do it proper, uh, I wouldn't be going back to Ephesians next week. <clears throat> but I am planning on going back to Ephesians for all you naysayers. Ephesians will be in Ephesians chapter 6 and finish up that letter. But I'm going to read to you uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 13, to keep it super simple, but I think it ac uh, accurately captures whatever you read in a better translation. I'm just going to give it to you in a very simplified form. This is from the Living Bible. So Romans chapter 10 puts it this way. For Moses wrote that if a person could be perfectly good and hold out against temptation all his life and never sin once, then he could be pardoned and saved. That is still true. That was true from the beginning. It's still true today. There, is, there are more than one way to heaven. One way is, if you can be perfectly good, resist every temptation your entire life, start to finish, then you are righteous, you have entrance into the kingdom of God. Actually, in a sense, that's not even true because you're guilty right from birth. But that being besides the case, uh, in a sense, if you could live a perfectly righteous life, it would be impressive and you'd still fall short. <laughs> Verse 6, but the salvation that comes through faith says, you don't need to search the heavens to find Christ and bring him down to help you and... You don't need to go among the dead to bring Christ back to life again. For salvation that comes from trusting Christ, which is what we preach, is already within easy reach of each of us. In fact, it is as near as our own hearts and mouths. God's salvation is so near, it's, it's near to you today, it's near to what comes out of your mouth and what's in your heart. That's how near it is. According to Paul... In Romans chapter 10, he goes on to say, For if you confess openly with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in the heart that a person becomes right with God. And with the mouth he tells others of his faith, confirming his salvation. For the scriptures tell us that no one who believes in Christ will ever be disappointed. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all those who ask him for them. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's near. You call upon the name of the Lord to be saved from your heart, understanding who he is, forsaking your own righteousness, forsaking your own best efforts and merit. Call upon his name. And salvation is freely and fully available in him. That's a wonderful promise. It's exactly what Peter preached at Pentecost. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the church until Christ comes back. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When Christ comes back, that message is no longer proclaimed. At that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It won't be a confession of faith, except for those who have believed, but it will be a confession that he, in fact, was Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. And some will enter into the kingdom of heaven, his righteousness, and some won't. 
But now the message is, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He talks about peace, and he talks about salvation. And the psalmist describes, uh, what, what does that peace look like? What does it look like when all is well? What does it look like when the Lord saves in answer to the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 85? What does that look like? How will you recognize it when God has fulfilled his purposes of salvation? He tells you in the psalm, it reads like this. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That's what all is well looks like. That's what God's salvation looks like at the end of Psalm 85. When he talks about steadfast love, he's talking about God's covenant love, his loyalty to what he said he will do. When he's sworn by himself... He isn't going to set it aside and say, well, I would have done it, but you people have become much more difficult than I could have possibly imagined. I'm not going to bring salvation like I said I would because of you. When God has promised by his own name, his salvation and his peace, all is well, it will be brought about because it depends solely on him. Twice you read about this word faithfulness. Some Bibles, I'm pretty sure the New King James and the Old King James, translate the word truth. And that's a good word. It could easily be translated truth. And the idea behind this word of faithfulness or, or steadfast love and truth meet, what it is, it's appealing to a standard. It's appealing to fidelity. It's appealing to something that doesn't change. It's unwavering. God's steadfast love is unwavering. It will not be deterred. He will accomplish his purposes, as he always has, particularly purposes of redemption in Christ. Steadfast love and truth meet. He uses the word righteousness three times in, these, in this depiction. And this righteousness has to do with rightness of relationship and rightness of behavior. It's not simply... A, a moral standard of living right, it's being in right relationship. Both concepts are included in the word righteousness. So there is a rightness of relationship between God and his people and a rightness of behavior between God's people and himself. Righteousness. The last word, peace, which we've already looked at on some level, is the word shalom. Uh, all is well. Everything is made whole. And then you've got this, these, uh, this idea of meeting together or kissing one another. Faithfulness springing up from the ground and righteousness coming down from the sky. There's this convergence in this text. There's a convergence taking place. Everybody recognizes that this is a portrayal of full and final restoration. When it's all said and done, this is what it looks like. What they don't agree on, commentators, some commentators are arguing, this is depicting uh, what it looks like, what God will do. Other commentators say, 
we think this is looking at the difference it makes in our lives, what it looks like from our vantage point, and some say it's a mixture of the two. It's looking at what God's done, looking at uh, the response found in us, and this is the, the picture that's being portrayed here. I'm going to go with largely, this is a portrayal of God's attributes and actions. Because at the end of the day, if God doesn't do something, you've got no perfect picture at the end. And I need to point out that good commentators, and they're right to do so, are careful to point out, don't come away with this thinking that somehow God's steadfast love and his truth, or God's steadfast love and his righteousness, that somehow they're at odds with one another. That they're, they're not in harmony with one another. That's an impossibility. God is perfectly who he is all the time. From our vantage point, a meeting takes place. From God's vantage point, there was never not a meeting. They were perfectly united all the time. God's steadfast love and his truthfulness and his righteousness and his peace were always operating in perfect harmony all the time. But from our vantage point, we thought, it's easy to think, I don't know how that could possibly happen, we're sinful. But there's this wonderful convergence, this wonderful meeting that takes place, where we see the harmony in God's attributes take place, and they take place primarily in the cross. Primarily in the cross. God's steadfast love, he said he would save his people, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And God, in his steadfast love, fulfills his purposes of salvation without ever sacrificing his own righteousness and truth. Because Romans also says, and I think it's chapter 3, God is both uh, the just and the justifier of those who will believe. He's the one who makes it happen. And he also has maintained perfect justice throughout. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has some wonderful quotes on this as well. How how unimaginably God is able to accomplish all of his purposes without ever diminishing any one of his attributes. And it all takes place in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer where you have the line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? It looks like verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? It looks like steadfast love and faithfulness meeting. It looks like righteousness and peace kissing each other. It looks like faithfulness springing up from the ground and righteousness looking down from the sky, which is, by, by the way, it's a wonderful picture. The faithfulness or the truthfulness that's in the ground, it's buried there right now. Just like farmers are going to, in a couple months, they'll put seeds in the ground and you'll wait for them to come up. Right now, God has planted seeds in the ground. Seeds of what he's promised to do. And they're still dormant. They're still, a lot of those seeds are still in the ground. We're still waiting. Because God's will isn't being done on earth even as it is in heaven. That, those seeds are still in the ground. But one day, God's not going to say, oh, forget it. I'm just going to start over. One day those seeds are going to sprout because his righteousness is going to come down from the sky. And those seeds are going to sprout. And everything God has ever promised to do will be brought to completion. 
Because God is not man that he should change or repent or alter his purposes. And I think that does it. Psalm 85. What are your comments and questions? Jonathan. Which fits well with Sunday school as well, when Larry was talking that, you know, if I'm looking at the world or if I'm looking at the headlines or if I'm ex overexposing myself and listening to what I'm, I'm seeing out there, I'm discouraged. But if I'm looking to what God said is true and where, how this is all going to wrap up, then I'm very much encouraged. I'm very much encouraged. His word does not return into him void. It will accomplish exactly what he set it out to accomplish. And it's in that that the church moves forward. Joe. So that, that phrase in verse 8, that let them not turn back to father, you say that's like a parenthetical assertion? Or? No, no, I, I think it's a, it's a tension that's unresolved in Psalm 85. It's a tension unresolved in Psalm 85. Because ultimately, the people of God, his saints, his godly ones, they've got to be, they've got to arrive at a state where they don't turn back to folly. How is that going to happen? isn't resolved in Psalm 85, it is resolved in the cross. But God isn't saying, uh, God never relents from that standard. He wants a people that don't turn back to folly. And that will be accomplished because of Christ. Not because finally, I'm finally going to really believe. I'm really going to try harder this time. Yeah, it's an unresolved tension. Somebody else? Sarah. Yes. If I'd had all the time in the world, I would have uh, I thought about that. Which is interesting. I love that song. It's such a beautiful, peaceful song, all as well. But in a sense, that, that song we sing at Christmas, all is well, it's kind of like joy to the world. It's a prophetic song because all isn't well. But because Christ came in accordance with God's promise, all is well because that's the foretaste of it all being fulfilled. So in a sense, all is well because God is keeping his word. Joy to the world is anticipating this. This is what joy to the world looks like. Right now, we don't have joy to the world. By faith, we do. But there's still a lot of injustice and hurt and pain and atrocity. Things you don't even want to think about happening are happening, and there isn't joy to the world. But I know when it's all said and done, it will all be resolved because God has given us his word. But that is a beautiful song, as is Joy to the World. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.